So to kind of set the stage, uh, all of us have a story to tell. Every single one of you has a story that is worth telling, and you have a story that is worth hearing. Now, in our context here at church, when we either are interviewing somebody or we even use it in counseling things, whether marriage or whatever, we use this thing called a journey line, which is a, a chance for you to start to plot the events of your life, the highs, the lows, the things that might have been positive, the things that might have been negative. And we start to see this picture and this story unfold. And, and we're going to step into that kind of story today, and we're going to be using that kind of imagery today. Because the truth about story, if you are on, I mean, I don't know how many of you like, like movies, and all of you, to some degree, engage with story. Now, if I were to get up here and say, you know what, I just went to this movie, and it was just the greatest movie I've ever seen. The story goes like this. There's this guy, he was born into this great family. He lived a really, really comfortable life. He performed well in school. He was able to marry his high school sweetheart. He got a fantastic job. They started to have kids. He got a raise. They went, entered into retirement and just, uh, you know, sailed off into their, into their own death with joy and thanksgiving and had this wonderful life. What, what would you think? Yeah, yeah, right. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we can't connect to that. I don't find any kind of, like, resonance with that story. But what is it that we connect with? We connect with the struggle. We connect with the pain. We connect with the story of tragedy because all of a sudden, the playing field gets leveled. Because it'll either do one of a few things inside of you. It may just make you feel like, I'm not alone. Somebody else has felt this before. Or it may even make you just kind of say, I can't even imagine what they're feeling. But whatever it is, that is what we start to resonate with. That is what we start to engage with and that compels us and pulls us into our story and into the lives of other people. Yet what do we spend so much time doing? We spend so much energy trying to remove ourselves from our pain. We spend so much time trying to either rise above it and make sure that it never happens again, and we try to escape it. And yet, as we just said, the very thing that creates connection with people more influ with more influence and with more honesty and uh, reverberance is our pain. There's a... Uh, quote that I just love. Uh, make sure you mark your calendar for no November 9th. Uh, Jamie George is going to come speak to us. Jamie George was the pastor. If you came to the last year when we did the All Sons and Daughters um, Night of Worship, he was the guy that came and talked in the middle. He's going to come and teach here on November 9th, which is awesome. He has a book called Love Well, and this is a little caption from it. Some of us long to be known, yet no one has taken the time to listen to the chorus of our lives, let alone the verses. And so we go on living a hollow existence. And if the story of your soul is never told, if the secrets of your heart 
are never shared, if the struggles of your life are never heard, then you are living the tragedy of an unobserved life. All that pain, the struggle that we try to escape is the very thing that creates the connection for us to have an observed life, I mean a shared life. And so I want to tell you a story today. I want to share with you a story, a real story, an honest story. Uh, a story that is uh, filled with every kind of up and down. And as we go along with our story, you're going to see kind of, we're going to demonstrate this whole idea of a journey line. You're going to see these things, these kind of points plotted along the way. Now, the point of that is for you to kind of get this visual. I don't want you to get so distracted by what's going on on the screens. I want you to be engaged with the story being told. But just so you can kind of see what we're talking about, you're going to see these things going along. So uh, I'm going to invite my friend Christy Emery to come on up here. And yeah, let's give her a hand. So, so over the last, uh, really, year or so, um, uh, Harper and I and, and uh, Ellen and Christy have become really good friends, and our kids hang out, and they go to the same school, and, and we were in an origins class, and we, part of it was sharing your story, and so, uh, and I was blown away by your story, and I started to kind of like poke and prod a little bit to say, you know, you're going to have to share that one day. And so here we are, uh, Troy asked me to speak, he was going to be gone, we had this kind of like perfect timing of the series ending, we we're going to be launching another series next week, and so as Christy was on her way, driving down for a week-long vacation, I call her, and, or I send her a text and say, hey, what do you think about sharing your story on August 31st? Have a fun vacation. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and that was, gosh, a month, month or so ago? Yeah, I think so. So you've had a little bit of time to... Not Curse my name and <laughs> wrestle oh. with it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but we got you to 85% yes, mm -hmm. and so I capitalized on that and said, that's yeah. enough. That's good enough for me. I think I said a few days ago, you know, I'm only at 85%. You still haven't gotten the 15. So, so this, this ship is sailing. It's <laughs> happening. <laughs> uh, so we're just going uh, to dive right in. So why don't you tell me, tell me about this little girl. Well, that's me. <laughs> and um, I grew up here in this area. I have two older brothers. Um, I actually went to a school, a Catholic school in Denmark, and then right around, I think it was after my third grade year, my parents got divorced, and we moved here to Green Bay. Cool. So you were the, you were the youngest. Mm-hmm. Um, so you had to claw your way through older brothers. And yeah. <laughs> But I was the only girl and the youngest, so. Oh, yeah. So I'm sure they would have a different story about that. Right. That's, that's, not, <laughs> <laughs> that's not so bad. But so your parents got divorced. Obviously, that was hard. That's mm -hmm. hard on, on kids in general. And, uh, and your brother actually moved in with your dad. Right. My oldest brother lived with my dad throughout, I mean, uh, since third, when I was in third grade on. Um, but we still saw each other, and we're still close. You're still close now. But, yeah. Very cool. It was a typically normal childhood. Cool. And uh, so tell me just school and how was school for you? And mm -hmm. School was fine. Um, I had started at obviously a new school when we moved to Green Bay and then um, started at another new school because the boundaries of the schools were changed. So it was, wasn't fun starting at new schools, but all in all it was okay. 
Right. Yeah. I can imagine. I know what it's like to change schools as a kid. It's not definitely not fun. Um, and so, all in all, pretty normal childhood, Catholic backdrop. Uh, but go ahead and tell me. So, at 12 years old, you had already come to a pretty pretty clear decision. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was 12, I remember kind of wrestling with my faith and. Um, I, I can remember the day that I told my mom, like, I don't really think I believe in God. I don't really buy this story. Right. And that was pretty much it. That kind of set the tone for, mm-hmm. for your faith journey, at least at that point. Right. Moving forward, it's like, this is just too unreal. Right. Like, unbelievable. I can't, how could any normal person think that this was the truth? So. Yeah. A flood, really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Okay, so then uh, moving into kind of junior high and high school, um, tell us about high school and who you met. And okay, yep, I went to high school, went to East High School. Um, I met a guy there named Clarence who um, basically I just fell in love with. So he was my boyfriend through all throughout high school and but you started off with a lie, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Forgot about that. Um, yeah, I did lie. I lied and told him that I was older than I was. And um, because he's older than me, he was 19, I was 15, but I was almost 16. But I told him I was almost 17, so. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's a little different. So, okay, so you meet this guy. You guys hit it off really, really well. So we're spending a lot of time together. And how does your family feel about this? Well, at first they did not approve because obviously they knew how old I was. <laughs> but um, yeah, we just had a connection, and over time, I think that they, you know, the older I got, the more they approved. They, yeah, they got over it. So, so this guy, Clarence, he from right away because you were a freshman in high school when you met him. I think I was a sophomore. Sophomore, but either way, he. He started to occupy a lot of space just in your world. Mm-hmm. So tell me about just your relationship with him and, and what was that like as a high school student with this pretty serious relationship? Yeah, we were serious. We spent every minute together that we could. Um, he worked and I went to school, but we didn't have a whole lot of, you know, we didn't have like a super close network of friends that we all hung out with. Um, it was just pretty much he and I all the time. Right. And so with that, with you guys being so close and and spending so much time together, what was your kind of circle of friends like? We did have a few friends um, who I would say, I mean, we weren't that bad, but we were typical teenagers, maybe involved in like, you know, just not caring about a lot of things like school and, you know, not putting emphasis in the right stuff in life at all, but not terrible so not people. bad people, right. just not the best influence in the world, mm-hmm. so it's just it's what it is. Okay. Well, and tell us a little bit about, about Clarence and, and his faith background and where he was coming from in regards to faith. He also grew up Catholic, um, and I think even more so than me, he was, you know, he, I don't want to say bought into it, but that's, I guess, how I thought about it at the time. Um, and I, we would kind of debate back and forth, and we both pretty much came to the conclusion like we didn't have the answers to the questions we had. So therefore, 
we didn't, we were not believers at all. We were anti-believers, actually. <laughs> An anti-believers, yeah. So, okay, so you guys remain serious all through high school. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and you said he was working while you were going to school. And uh, at one point, you guys decided to move in together. Right, right. after I graduated, uh, we moved in. We, um, we were together then three years. So, yeah, we lived together for about a year before we got married. So January 9th then, mm -hmm. 2004, you guys get married. Yep. So tell me about that. How was that? Well, we were young, so it was a very small wedding. Um, we made sure that the judge who married us did not mention any thing about God. I, I remember sitting there thinking, telling him, we're not believers, like, please do not talk about this, don't mention it, don't bring it up, because that's usually the theme of most weddings. And, um, yeah, so there was no mention of God at all in our wedding. That was, okay, so that was a pretty big line in the sand. We're not going there. That's right. not what we're about. Um, so, but you guys get married, mm -hmm. and you guys are happy, you kind of loving life. So tell me about married life as a 19-year-old. For us, it was the same because we had already been living together, so it was just, it was a small wedding, and we just went back to work and just kept going about our lives, just now being married. Now, now you're on insurance. Right, I got insurance. <laughs> <laughs> so that's good. We'll yeah. that going for you. Um, so then... Uh, so that was January 9th when you guys got married. So then March 12th, that ended up being a pretty big day. Tell, kind of get us up to speed leading up to March 12th. Sure. Um, well, like I said, we kind of had not a terrible group of friends, but a little bit um, just making bad choices. And one day, a friend of ours had said that he had gotten a certain drug and that we should try it. And we had already heard about it. It's basically like a hallucinogenic mushroom in a candy bar. So we were like, yeah, that's fine. I mean, we were really scared and searched, like, has anybody, you know, anything ever happened to anybody? And couldn't find anything, you know, we were thinking this isn't heroin or cocaine. It's, you know, something we knew people that had already used it. So we were like, okay, you know, just another... Something to do, something to try. Right, so you try it. Mm -hmm. um, so that, so a couple, I would say maybe a couple weeks after we got it, we finally tried it. Um, and and just, just to be clear too, you guys were not drug abusers. It's not no. like that was just this common theme in your life. This was no. just kind of a, an experimental thing that you guys just decided. Right. Yeah, I was just like a young, you know, right. kid. Just knew, like I said, we knew people that did it, and we were like, well, seems harmless, but fun, and we're going to try it. So, yeah, we were definitely not. We, you would never have known. None, nobody knew that I would have <laughs> done anything like that. Um, so that night, or that day, we, we took it. It was really gross, so I could barely choke any of it down. But So I ate a little bit, and he ate his and the rest of mine. So more than he should have. Right. Um, so then after a few hours, it's kind of setting in, and he's starting to really get scared. Like I can see in his voice that he's scared, and he's you know kind of walking around our apartment, freaking out a little bit. 
you know, crying and saying, I wish I didn't do this. I wish this would stop. This is so scary. You know, why? And we were trying to do anything we could to, like, get it out of his system. Um, and it would kind of be like, for, you know, a, a little period of time, he would be, like, out of it. And then all of a sudden he would come back to himself, and then you'd feel it kind of turn in your stomach. You can feel it come on again. So it was, like, back and forth of, like, him being level-headed and then him being way scared and, like, terrified and just scary. Um, so you're feeling it too, but just not to that extent. Right, right, because I didn't take as much. I mean, I was still feeling it, probably what, yeah, just a little bit, but not what he was, because he had taken way more than I did. Right. Um, so I was able to be pretty much the whole time. I mean, I was pretty level-headed. I was scared. Um, and I was trying to give him bread and trying to make him throw up and make him do whatever he could to get it out of the system because he was just like begging me, you know, for it to stop. Mm -hmm. So. And then, uh, but you didn't want to call the cops or call the paramedics or call 911? Well, I did, but he, you know, we were scared and thinking that it was going to stop, um, you know, I asked several times, should we call an ambulance? But he was like, no, because we're going to get in trouble. So, you know, just wait it out. It'll be over soon. We'll just be fine. So, um, you know, he keeps going back and forth and back and forth. And all of a sudden, he's just on his knees on the floor. And he just starts praying to Jesus, please, Jesus, I'm sorry, please help me with this, help us, I'm sorry, you know, like, I'll change, and he's just sitting there praying, which for me was even scarier than him, like, freaking out over anything else, because we were not Christians, and this was, like, serious, so I got down on my knees and was like, it's okay, you know, we can change, we can do whatever we need to do, we can go to church, we can change our lives, we can basically you know, look into this <laughs> idea. Right. Right. And um, so then he had gotten up, and I thought that he was back to himself, because now the period of time was getting a little longer, but every once in a while he's still slipping back into this. So um, I was kind of doing something else, but I could see, oh, and I forgot to say this again, he had been saying to me that whole time, like, I want to leave, I want to get out, like, I need to get out. And I was like, no, that's a really bad idea. So I could see that he was getting ready to leave, and I, like, blocked him from one door, and he ran to the other, like, back door of our apartment, and um, I blocked him again from that, and then he actually, you know, he was just out of his mind at that point, and he just put his arms around my neck and was like, if you don't, this is a hard part for me, <laughs> if you don't let me go, I don't know what I'll do to you, so just let me go. So just let him go. And he just left. So you're now uh, left in your apartment alone. Mm -hmm. This guy who you love, uh, who is obviously not acting consistently with the way he's treated you in the past. And so just, what are you feeling? He now has gone out the door. And what's going through your heart and your mind? I was terrified. And... Um, but I knew that because I had just taken drugs that I should not drive. So I called a friend of mine 
um, who I wasn't that close, like we were very close growing up, but wasn't that close with. So, but I was, I needed somebody, and she was the first person I thought of, so she came, and we searched for him, um, couldn't find any sign of him at all, and then we just went back to my apartment and waited for a while, and after, I mean, a few hours, he left at about 10, 15 at night, and so maybe it was like 2 or 3 in the morning, and I called the cops and said that he was missing. But at that point, I didn't tell them anything because I was still, I thought, he's going to come back and then he's really going to be mad that I <laughs> went through and called the cops after he told me not to. So um, I didn't tell them anything until the next morning. Okay. So, but at this point, you're thinking, he's just going to come back. He's obviously just kind of a little scared and out of his mind. And so right. let him do his thing and hopefully right. he's going to be. I 100% thought he would be back. So then the next morning comes. And you call the cops again? Is that what happened? Or? Um, I don't think I called them again, but they were still around. I mean, they were in contact with me. But, um, yeah, I told them that he was doing this. And, and then, so then the search kind of amped up a little bit. Um, but just that he never came home, I, I knew that something was wrong. Because mm -hmm. I knew he would never leave me to be by myself all night long. Right. So... So what turns into overnight now turns into a few days. Mm -hmm. So now how, after a few days of him being gone, tell us about where you're at and what you're doing. And well, I was on the news a lot, just trying to get his you know, picture out and his name out and following like hundreds of leads of, I might have saw him here or I think I saw him there. All that led nowhere. But I was hopeful that something was, you know, that people were seeing him, and so I thought. So, um, yeah, we just did lots of searches, lots of great volunteers, and helped out. So, and so you started to have this like stuff. group, the support group that started to happen of strangers as well as friends alike. Mm -hmm. uh, media is involved. Authorities are obviously involved, and the authorities they're they're coming after not coming after you, but they're crushing right. you. Right, which I think is to be expected that uh, the, you know, the wife would be the first person that they talked to, but being in that situation was really hard because I, I didn't know what to do or what to say. You know, number one, we were doing something illegal, so I was like, am I going to go to jail for that? Like, you know, and just yeah, being interrogated and being alone because I didn't have any, you know, I wasn't close with that many, obviously I had my family, but I wanted him there. Like, I wanted him to be the one helping me go through this and, mm -hmm. yeah. And then, and then in the midst of all that, kind of these false leads that are leading you down trails mm -hmm. that right. turn up nothing. So it's a pretty heavy, stressful time that's just mounting. Yeah. So in the midst of all of this, there's, there's one voice that starts to become present in your life, Clarence's aunt. Mm -hmm. Tell me about her. Well, she had called, and we, I had never met her personally, but we've talked, um, and she, she lived in Florida, so she would call me, and she just started to pray with me over the phone, and I remember being like, I don't know how to pray, I don't know, you know, and she just like, I'll pray. Um, so at that point, because of what happened when he had gotten down and started, you know, calling out to Jesus, then I was, it just kind of sparked something in me, like, maybe, you know, or at least 
I wanted to call to him because I felt like that was my only hope, not necessarily because I trusted or believed, but because I wanted Clarence to come home. Right, right. So uh, all of this kind of mounting and, and building experience and uh, adding a lot of just pressure on you um, brings us to, to Good Friday, mm-hmm. April 9th. Um, tell us about that day. That was our three-year or three-month wedding anniversary, um, and we were doing another search that day, which was mostly family. But the news crew was still there, um, interviewing me that morning. And at at that time, it had been a while, so like I was kind of, you know, saying the things I knew that to say, and I was actually a little hopeful because we hadn't found anything at all that maybe he was somewhere and just something happened or he was scared or I, I didn't know but I I certainly was um, hopeful right. that we wouldn't find anything again that day mm-hmm. so I went into the searches thinking if we don't find anything then that's a good sign mm-hmm. um, unfortunately I got a call from my sister-in-law saying that there were several police cars you know their sirens just gathering around the area where she was searching. Um, so I headed over there and um, just... Sorry. What are you thinking at this point? So you, you said, oh, there's police cars, and so you're driving up or going over there. What are you thinking? Um, I, I can't really say that I remember exactly what I was thinking. I think I was still a little bit... I. My mind did not go there. I was not going to allow my mind to like think the worst. So I was, I don't know, I was thinking it was probably not anything related to what I was doing. But um, turns out that they had found a body in the river. um, And they took that picture of me while I was watching them pull it out. And um, yeah. Right after this happened, a police officer came and told me that I couldn't be there anymore and I should go back to my apartment. And they came and identified, you know, what he was wearing, and it was him. him. So, at 19 years old, you go from carefree, happy, newlywed uh, to widow. How does a 19-year-old deal with that? Well, it was really lonely because nobody could really relate to anything. And I just remember thinking, why couldn't it be me and him consoling somebody else? Mm-hmm. I didn't even really know how to like live my life without him at that point. And I had to plan his funeral, plan, you know, I had the help of both of our families. but. It was ultimately, I was his wife, and it was my choices, so it was That's, yeah. unreal. That's hard. And so there's some level of detachment and just kind of going numb, especially having to make those kind of decisions. Uh, so the night before Clarence's funeral, though, you, you got a, a gift. Mm-hmm. So tell us about that. His aunt came to town from um, Florida for his funeral, and she had given me a Bible that she bought for me because she knew I didn't have one. And um, 
wrote a little message on the inside and told me that the night before that she was praying, you know, just for God to help her find anything that would help me to console me. You know, just she just didn't know what to say to me after we had been praying for so long. And um, she said that she just opened her Bible and the first verse that she saw was um, the one... Romans that says those who call out in the name of the Lord shall be saved and at that point I was like oh my goodness like he called out to the name of the Lord and so he's saved and so I want to be saved again not necessarily for the right reason but because I wanted to see him again and I wanted to believe he was in heaven and um yeah Huge pretty cool. transformation, you know, from kind of previously the way you guys were thinking. And then isn't it true of all of us that we don't necessarily even come to faith in Christ with the right intentions? A lot of times it's because I want to, you know, escape hell or, you know, in your case, I just want to be reunited with somebody that I love. Mm-hmm. Uh, and God's big enough to <laughs> hear us in that. Right. Um, and so... Kind of knowing what you know now, let's just bring us to the present for a second. Um, and looking back at the story, kind of how, how can you see God's hand intervening, even in the midst of you saying you didn't believe in him? Right. Um, well, a lot of different reasons um, or things that I can think of. When, when I found out that Clarence had died pretty close to the night that he left, we're not exactly sure, but probably that night. Um, I think it was a blessing that there was so much time and so many leads and so, you know, nothing came up because I feel like at the time, if he would have, if he would have left and died, that I, I wouldn't have had any reason to live. And I'm, I mean, I thought about even once I found out that he died, I mean, the thought of suicide came to my mind a lot, but because I knew that I wanted to see him again, that saved my life. So that is probably the biggest one. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, so getting back into the story here, so um, at this point you've kind of dove into a little bit of a depression, understandably, mm-hmm. and just gave in to drinking and just kind of feeling numb. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of just tell us about that time and what kind of started to happen from there. Yeah, I basically pretended like nothing happened as if he was, you know, we broke up and I kind of started drinking every night and yeah, not not really grieving at all because I was just stuffing it down. I, I didn't know how to handle it. I did not know how to live without him because I've never, I mean, I was with him for so long at that point that I, I didn't know what to do. So you had a, a girlfriend move in with you. Right, yep. The same girl that helped me that night moved in. Um, you know, and like I said, she was a Christian, so we did talk about things, and um, she actually told me about a church that I could go to that was non-denominational church and different from what I had known and, you know, maybe I should try it out. And 
that she had a friend that went there too because she didn't go to the church. So um, we started going with him. Very cool. So, so now you start going to church. You start going to community. Mm-hmm. You start going here. And, and what was initially just a, hey, why don't you go check it out? Um, you start attending. Yeah. You start coming. Started, yeah, I stayed here. He, her friend had gone back to college, and I'd still come with his family, and um, yeah. And, but all along, though, uh, you're, still, you're still fighting this numbness. You're still having lots of questions. Oh, yeah. I, didn't, I hadn't had any questions I originally had at 12 answered by that time. It was just a pure selfish reason that I wanted, I really wanted that, and I knew there had to be some reason that so many, you know, people believe this without, so one day I was here, and Troy was the guest speaker, actually, and he had mentioned Case for Christ, the book, and he said, you know, if you, just like a flippant comment, if you, you know, have any questions about if Jesus was real, or, you know, any of his miracles, or, you know, read the case for Christ, and I did, and it, yeah, changed my life because it answered all the questions that I had no idea there was answers to right. that weren't, you know, I used to think it was just Christians are writing this and saying this, but to see non-Christian things support the same stories was unbelievable. Yeah, it's huge. So in the midst of your, your questioning, your, your finding some answers, uh, there's a relationship kind of ends up being born from this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he and I started dating, and, um, yeah, we had kind of, were friends, and he was just really helping me along with my faith. I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> he probably thought I was, I always think that it was weird because he was in college while this was happening, but then came home, so his family knew who I was because they saw me on the news. God bless them. <laughs> and I can only imagine what they thought when I was in their house one day. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, he just kind of, we started dating after that. And there are times when I would be crying to him about Clarence, you know, and just that he allowed me to, still grieve because it was fresh mm-hmm. and even today still because it's not like you guys got divorced or anything like that I mean it was you loved him mm-hmm. and uh, you know Alan I know Alan well he's sitting over here and he's a piece of work but <laughs> uh, but he was able to demonstrate uh, love for you in the midst of that to give you the space and freedom to still grieve right. over another man. I mean, how did that work? How did that? How did you two click? I I do not know. <laughs> I I was joking after the first service. I like to think that he just thought I was so attractive that he could not. He was like whatever. <laughs> but um, I don't I don't know. I just somehow he was just the one person that was teaching me about God and telling me, you know, telling me which things were, because I obviously had different beliefs than he did, and he just made me a better person in general, 
And yeah, I don't know. Like again, God's hand in it, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I think that's just such a cool picture of um, just how Christ loves us and in the midst of our questioning struggles and trials he still accepts us and pursues us and uh yeah that's a it's a beautiful picture and it was funny I was talking with Alan afterwards too and he was kind of like honestly I just didn't know what to say <laughs> he's like so she has questions and I go okay but the fact that you know it's credit to Alan he was there you know so much in in we talk about this in life and faith, whatever, it's like half the battle's just showing up and being present, being in and it. And he was probably one of the few people in this area that didn't already have a preconceived notion of who I was or, and, you know, maybe if he was here, it wouldn't have, right. he would have seen me and it would have been a different story, but he just knew me as me and, mm -hmm. yeah. And so, so this relationship continues to, to blossom and, and, uh, you know, you're, you're still getting questions answered, but you, especially after this book, you, you feel more convinced than ever. So now going from 12 years old, where you had decided to, no, I don't believe this, to, to this day where you decide to get baptized. Right. So tell me about that, because that's pretty huge. Right. Well, a few years, I would, I'm, I can't remember exactly how long it was after we were married, but um, yeah, after reading the book, I thought that was really the when it really clicked with me that like this was true and um, you know, not necessarily that I have to see how it all worked from the ark and Eve, mm -hmm. but that if I believed this to be true, that you know, Jesus performed these miracles and things that I now know the answer to that I can't refute, that those things kind of fell in line. And at that point I was like, we had been just starting to do baptisms in front here, and I was like, that's yeah. exactly what I should do, because right. right, at that point, I was a believer. And not in the baptizi, right? No, not in the Didn't baptizi. have, this was pre-baptizi. I This know. was the old horse old trough. Old school, it was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I mean, obviously, we kind of skipped over the fact that you guys got married. Right. And uh, Joe Erkovich actually did your, your wedding, mm -hmm. uh, which is just, just awesome to see how this church started to become part of your, your family. Right. And, um, Alan and, then, and I both got baptized on the same day too, by the way. Very cool. Yeah. That's, that's great. And so then you guys start having kids and Eden was born. And mm -hmm. um, now obviously this doesn't mean that just everything in life now all of a sudden is, is great. Because right. you still ex experience loss. I mean, your dad dies. Yeah, my dad died three years ago. He's 53, suddenly, so yeah, still heartache, still nervous for what God has in store for me after all of this, because <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I'm just like, come on, God, <laughs> this is enough, but um, the difference is that at that point, God was a huge part of my life, and the difference between grieving without him and with him is, I mean, it it wasn't, I, I mean, I'm sad, but I know now right. I'll see my dad again. Yeah. So. That's awesome. Yeah. And then uh, Travers is born, and, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, so now we have a picture of your family. You guys, it's a, it's a good looking family. Yeah. <laughs> 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 
Well, um, I want to kind of wrap up our time together. There's this quote that I, another one that I really love, and uh, just says, when your greatest heartache becomes your greatest ministry, grace has come full circle. So thanks for letting your greatest heartache become your ministry. Because uh, you've had to tell this story. You, I mean, you confess to me. You knew you had to tell it, even though that was not in your comfort zone at all. No. Like, yeah, I said in the last service, if you see me up here and think, I would never do that, that is how I feel. Right. Like, I, yeah. I'm and still at 85%. <laughs> <laughs> right. I really want to, and I pray to God for opportunity all the time, but... I'm, yeah, not a great mm -hmm. public speaker. <laughs> I, you're doing fine. <laughs> and, um, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you've had to share your story with Mops, and then now here, and it's just, it's just a very cool thing that we get to enter into your story. And uh, so thanks for that. Now, I promised you that I wouldn't throw you any curveballs. I want to throw you a curveball. Uh-oh. Um, it's not a theological question, is it? Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Tell me your thoughts on soteriology. Go. Um, no, <laughs> when we were, to, you know, uh, Christy and Harper and I, uh, we, we had to met a few, we met a few times leading up to today just to kind of, you know, learn your story and, and be able to do this well. And, and one of the things that was, um, you know, when we were talking about you getting baptized, we were saying it was old school before we had the baptuzi and all that kind of stuff. Well, this was before we did the plaque. This was before we did the shirt or anything like that. So I wanted to make sure to go out of, out of my way to make sure that you get one of these Yay. for your profession because she didn't get this when she got baptized. And so anyway. And I do give them a hard time about how I never got I know. She's like, I really wanted one of those things. So there you go. Get you, get <laughs> you, you get to have one. <laughs> so, thank hey, <laughs> can you guys thank her for sharing her story? Uh, <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Well, uh, oh gosh, I know we went long, but what a beautiful story. What a beautiful, uh, you know, all of the pain and the tragedy. We get to see something redemptive in the midst of it. And that is what is true of all of you. Now, I'm a visual person and I'm also a musician. And I think there's something beautiful about the way music works. And so we see, you know, this journey line that has highs and lows and, and everything in between. And when we can take a look at the perspective, and, and dare I say, even kind of the way God sees this, I, I, I believe that it looks more like this. That our life is a song. We just heard a symphony that's unfinished, an unfinished symphony, that all of those things work together. Now, there's a couple little musical things. I'm going to give you a quick theory lesson. I'm going to steal Meg's guitar for a second. That when in composing music and you're teaching a child about music, you tell them pretty early that major chords sound happy. Is this thing on? You get it? There it is. Minor chords sound sad. You know, there's emotion attached to it. And then as you advance in theory that there is chords that create dissonance, and dissonance creates tension. So if I were to just play a chord like... 
if, you know, in and of itself, it doesn't necessarily sound like right. It's got this like, uh, it's not quite put together yet because it needs resolution. It needs to have a chord on either side of it to create resolution. Now, the interesting thing about music, and this is true for life, is that both major and minor chords can create resolve. Not just happy chords can create resolve. And then there's suspension chords that sound unfinished. That, that resolve to give you a sense of victory. There's the sense of like finality to it. And you put all of those things together in order to create music. You can't isolate any one of those things. You can't just have happy chords. You can't just have minor chords. You can't just have dissonant chords. You can't just have suspension chords. You need all of them together to put Now, it's a campy little chord progression, but you get the point. That had major, minor, dissonant, and resolve. And all of that is true of our lives. We can't just remove the minor chords out of our life. We can't just remove the tension out of our lives. We need that to be able to create the symphony that God is doing in you. And in every single story that is represented in the seats in this room, there is a common thread. I don't care if you think your story is plain or uneventful or if you think that the tragedy that you've experienced is too overwhelming for somebody to hear. Wherever you may think about your story, the one thing that I know is true is that it is a story of redemption. It is a story that is being redeemed by the greater story of God's symphony. He is doing something in you. Now the verse that uh, Christy had mentioned comes from Romans 10. And it says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now, I grew up believing that that just meant that I had to be a better evangelist. That I had to be better at sharing Christ. That I had to somehow be better at communicating and convincing others so that they could know the good news. The, the reference to those who bring good news, that line right there is actually a quote from Isaiah. Paul was talking to Jewish people, so he knew that they would know what he's talking about. That quote in Isaiah is when the Israelites received word that their, their captivity was over, that they were being redeemed, that they were being released from their bondage. So that is the good news that every single one of us have in our story, that there is redemption. And so beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, is beautiful are those that are sharing their story. Beautiful are those that are being honest and vulnerable about, about what is happening. I mean, think about Christy rising above her fear of public speaking to be able to share that and how all of us are drawn in and all of us are reminded of the hope that we have. And again, you know, I think it's just such a beautiful picture 
you know, of Alan. I mean, he even said, he's like, it sounds way more dramatic when you talk about it that way. But loving her in the midst of her struggling. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. And so your struggle isn't something that you just need to overcome. Your struggle is something that needs to be told. That need to be shared. We're going to uh, move into a time right now of, of just response. I'm going to have Meg and the team come back up. And I know we're running a little bit long. On your seats, there's a card. And the picture on it is that red rope. You know, we've been using that picture over the last several weeks. This, we've been given this little time that's represented in this red part of the rope with the rest of it being eternity. And as you have just heard this story and you got to see all the plots that moving up and down that get turned into this symphony, uh, while Meg is, is singing this song, uh, I want you just to take a minute right now and start plotting some of the points on your journey line, the highs and the lows that change the direction of your story. For some of you, that might be easy, and you're already going, oh, I know. There is this and this and this. For some of you, you might have to dig deep. And so just take a minute uh, and start. And I wish I, could, I didn't give, wasn't able to give everybody a writing tool, so hopefully you have something. And just start to plot. This happened. This was bad. This happened. Put a few of those on to get the ball rolling, and I'd encourage you to take it with you so that you can keep on plotting these points that change the direction of your story. And as you take this time, we're uh, going to sing a song here in a second.